0: Welcome to the Magnificast, I'm Matt Bernico, uh, I teach at Greenville University, uh, I teach things like media archaeology, cultural studies, podcasting classes, that's a real thing I'm doing this semester, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, And
1: I do this podcast and that's fun. Uh, I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student in uh, philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario, and I write as a journalist and... Uh, do a bunch of other other stuff i just came back from a conference in atlanta from the political theology network and that was really a cool cool thing to do
0: yeah how'd the conference go was it fun
1: it was fun uh i presented a paper that matt and i both wrote together on christians for socialism past and present so kind of a history thing and chatting a little bit about what what's going on now and how it fits into conversations about the uh, christian and religious left and yeah It was really neat. Um, Actually, I should just uh, help them out a little bit by plugging. They have a podcast now called Assembly, and it seems like it's going to be cool. Uh, They are going to post some of the conversations that were going on at the conference, and the network seemed really, really neat. If you do research, like if you're a student or an activist, um, and you do research on political theology or do work in it, uh, it might be something worth Kind of checking out, so I don't know. Keep your eye on that thing. They have a they have a Twitter presence and a Facebook, and they have an academic journal. But they're kind of trying to expand it um, into more, I guess, more more nodes. Keep trying to get more people on board. So it's a cool cool thing, I guess. I mean, I'm going to go next year, so that's a good review.
0: Well, yeah, Um, yeah. I heard about the podcast the other day from Vincent Lloyd. Um, He uh, he was at the conference you were at, and then he came all the way to Greenville to give a. Uh, guest lecture and chapel address about mass incarceration, so it's like we were together, but through a third <laughs> person who you know wasn't either of you, us but okay, <laughs> great, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, sort of like mediation, but I don't know uh something going there, on there
1: there's a Hegel joke, but we just cannot find it,
0: yeah, um, well, it was cool hanging out with Vincent lloyd that was pretty dope uh he was yeah same uh here for a few <laughs> days, uh, uh yeah uh i ate dinner with him i ate pizza i ate pizza with him twice how about that i ate mm, two times that's more than i did yeah and uh it was cool so hung out with him i did get
1: beer with amoria though amoria Armstrong, oh, who does yeah. the music for our podcast and uh i feel like that's a pretty good pretty good thing to check off my my bucket list i've done it it's on the list now and now it's off the list so got that going for me
0: that's extremely cool did you see your paper
1: I did not because we presented at the same time, tragically, no. frustratingly. I know. It's just how good goes at conferences, you know?
0: Yeah, that is how, exactly how it goes. Conference presenters, conference organizers, get on that. Stop <laughs> scheduling all the good papers at once.
1: That's right. Uh, well, Vincent Lloyd is a very good transition. Uh, I don't know if we're ready to make it. Um, yeah, I'm ready. okay good Vincent that's a good transition because way way back way back in the the Magnificat's vault uh, is episode 6 of this this show where we talked to Vincent about a ton of stuff about prison abolition and some of the research he was doing on it but also about Huey P. Newton and some of the sort of theological currents that informed Newton and the Black Panther Party believe it or not there were a lot of them I guess Uh, that's what Vincent has uh, has researched and uncovered and he does a pretty pretty good job of it. And so in this episode, we decided to do a little bit of that work ourselves and kind of read a little bit of Huey P. Newton's stuff and, and pull some of those themes out. Uh, everybody's talking about Black Panther because it's a movie. And so we decided <laughs> we're going to gonna talk about the real Black Panthers, <laughs> but specifically Huey P. Newton, some of the stuff he had to say about the church and Jesus in particular.
0: Yeah, before we go any further, though, uh, (laughs) I need to share this story that someone posted on the Magnificast Basement. Uh, (laughs) So, if you are uh, not sure what that is, uh, the Magnificast Basement is our Facebook group, and you can join it. Just search the Magnificast Basement. And that's a deep cut joke from episode two. Maybe a billion episodes ago. Anyways, someone posted this uh, story there. I guess a friend of mine was glancing over my shoulder and saw I was reading about the Black Panthers breakfast programs. Then the uh, friend says, uh, "Man, that movie is doing some intense marketing." <laughs> <laughs> I like. They sure I, I like so much that someone out there <laughs> thinks that like that there's like a guerrilla marketing team for the film (laughs) black panther that is also doing the work of
1: the black panther party it truly would be guerrilla marketing
0: oh my gosh (laughs) it was (laughs) it's such a good that's such a good thing it's such a good thing and such a funny thing not to know but i
1: like it so much (laughs) i don't know you just like how would you even begin that conversation and explain it (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah it would be a difficult one to have i think <laughs> you would ne- you'd need to take several steps back from that that basic assumption right there but, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense though right like people are buying uh buying out theaters and letting letting like people go see it for free and like that's been an awesome thing. The movie's been like really important for uh people of color, and that's awesome and then like I don't know, just also making people breakfast I don't know <laughs> why not? They Marvel get, get on it. Yeah, I think they should.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I saw the movie. Did you see the movie?
0: Oh, yeah. I saw the movie hard.
1: Nice. Yeah, it was a good movie. I don't know. Not not a thing I want to talk about on the podcast, but uh, no. it was fun to watch anyway.
0: Yeah, it was really fun to watch. Um, I don't want to talk about the podcast either because I feel like all of the good takes have been taken already. Um, <laughs> what I have enjoyed most about it is that everyone has so many ideas about it on Twitter. and yeah. Uh, all, it's like uh when a big movie comes out people all of a sudden care care about like media criticism and that's awesome um yeah. makes me makes me feel good i like reading reading all those those good takes
1: yeah it's generated a lot of cool discussion even for i mean you know like it's good to be critical of of marvel movies and movies in in general uh and i appreciate that some of the even the critical takes of the film are like very nuanced and interesting to read as opposed to reading critiques of i don't know Marvel Civil War <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Or like reading critiques of Iron Man where you're like, yeah, that guy's a billionaire. Well, the end. Moving on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, man, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote this great thing on Facebook about um, about uh, Black Panther and like the the way she felt conflicted about like the role of the CIA in the film. And it was cool. Kimberly yeah, Crenshaw totally. is, is dope. Um,
1: yeah. Amoria had a bunch of cool stuff to say as well on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay, we're not, but we're not going to talk about it, though. It's really important that we stick with that because you said it. We're
1: definitely not talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> uh,
0: but what we are going to do is talk about the uh, extremely, uh, just the way cooler Black Panther uh, thing, uh, the Black Panther Party and uh, Huey P. Newton. <laughs> Oof, that's a that's one of those good transitions we've got going right there. That's right. Uh, so, Dean, do you want to, like, flesh out a little bit about uh, who Huey P. Newton is and, like, why we care about this guy?
1: Sure, uh, a little bit. Uh, before we jump in though, just like a couple of disclaimer notes that probably seem obvious but are worth mentioning I guess. Uh, one is that, I mean, we're we're two white people talking about the Black Panther Party and by virtue of that we're extremely <laughs> limited uh, and some things we say are, are probably wrong so I guess, I don't know, take all of the, the following with a grain of salt and do your own research and figure that out and Chat with people who know a lot more than we do about that. Uh we're just really into these essays by Huey P. Newton, so figuring that out. Um, and secondly, Huey P. Newton has a lot of gendered language in his own kind of writing, but we just kind of read the quotes as he had them. So it's not really an endorsement, or hopefully not an endorsement, <laughs> of doing that, taking uh, the the male gender as a kind of universalizing discourse. But anyway, that's that's what he's doing. So we're just representing it in the in the way that he read it. Um, Apart from that, we'll uh, just jump into it. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but um, I will preface this by saying uh, Brett at Revolutionary Left Radio has been doing some pretty, pretty great episodes on the Black Panther Party historically and interviewing people who know a lot about it. And I would just encourage everyone to go listen to that, I guess, uh, (laughs) to start off, Um, just because there are a lot of people who know a lot more about it than we do and uh he he does all that really good 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 work of bringing all those people together so check that out but um the short of it is that uh the black panther party was started um a long time ago in the 60s and it was uh started by a lot of folks but one of them was a guy named huey p newton and he was a law student and he was the minister of defense for the party which is kind of a maybe a funny thing to think about if you think about American Marxist Leninist kinds of, of parties like the Black Panther Party. Um, Newton was a fascinating character. He had a pretty wild life and a lot of uh, ups and downs, you could say, I guess. But one very kind of cool and funny thing that he thought about was the Second Amendment. So he thought well, the Constitution guarantees people gun rights. There's no reason that black people can't have guns and arm themselves in communities where they feel targeted. And that's exactly what the Black Panther Party did. So uh, that was a a kind of very interesting strategy that he helped to to spearhead and and really think about. And he became a, a really important theoretical Uh, voice of the party and you know he was imprisoned and he became a a sort of mythical figure in the party as a result of that um if you want to know more about that it's i would encourage everyone again just to go back and listen to the episode we did do with vincent lloyd episode six uh where he does a lot of good work kind of explaining i guess the aura around Huey p newton and some of the the uh, politics involved behind that. Um, but the short of it is that he was an extremely important part of a real life political party that happened in the. US that was premised on black liberation here at home and inspired by liberation movements around the world like the movement in China and in Cuba and, and elsewhere. So a uh, really, really important character and uh, yeah, we decided on the podcast to check out a couple of his uh, writings. So Matt, do you want to tell us what what's going on with those two pieces?
0: Uh Yeah, so we read two different things, and they're pretty eclectic. I mean, we wanted to find those places where uh, Huey P. Newton was, like, talking about religion, because after all, this is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Um, so we did. We found those things. <laughs> uh, so uh, one essay we found is um, called On the Relevance of the Church. Uh, it is like a essay, but kind of written like a letter or something uh, from 1971, um, and he talks about the relationship between uh, the Black Panther Party and the church and in, um, in communities. And then the second thing is a little bit um, different. Uh, it's called the Son <laughs> of Man, uh, and it is um, from uh, that that big that big good uh, growing library of radical religion journals that we've uh, been collecting and amassing over time. Um, and uh, it's just kind of like a meditation uh maybe almost a sermon on like jesus as uh the the leader of a popular revolutionary movement um or something like that we'll get into it a little bit more here in a minute but those are the two things we read um we'll definitely give you guys some links so you can follow along uh if you're playing the uh the home game of the magnificast don't play it don't play it but read them (laughs) don't play the home game but Uh... read the articles it's good
1: (laughs) We should, uh, we should add to that the radical religion excerpt comes from Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide, which is really long, um, but has a lot of other Christological themes within it. Um, and this is just sort of one, I guess, abstracted component of that.
0: Uh, yeah, cool. Well, uh, let's start with the church stuff and then we'll, we'll focus in on the Jesus stuff. Um, yeah,
1: that's good. That's a good division for this episode. Yeah, yeah uh,
0: <laughs> that's the way we do it here. Church stuff first. Part one, Jesus.
1: church stuff. Part two, Jesus stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, the church stuff is interesting. So in this article, uh, basically, uh, Huey P. Newton is just uh, writing about the relationship between the Black Panther Party and the churches in their communities. And uh, it's interesting because he kind of offers a corrective to the role the Black Panther Party has played in previous sort of criticisms of church and religion. Um, and, uh, it's cool. It's a, it's a really great piece in terms of like, um, the, the sort of similarities between organizing a party and organizing a church. Um, we'll talk about those things in a minute, but, um, it's also recognizing that like, uh, people are invested in religion and, uh, like, you can't just ignore that. You can't just like, you know, write that off. So, um. The church essay is cool for those reasons. I think it's uh, a helpful way to start thinking through why churches are important to people who are involved in leftist struggles. I don't know. What did you take away from it, Dean?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I guess I tracked some some similar themes there. Uh, it's interesting that the party is trying to think through how to connect with the community in general. And one thing that Newton keeps coming back to over and over is that the church is also trying to connect with the community. And maybe in part for different reasons and maybe through different strategies, but nevertheless, uh, they're both kind of these groups that are trying to mobilize certain, um, you know, wider populace. And I guess one thing that I find so fascinating about the, the article is that you just see a revolutionary leader trying to think through um, how to partner with an organization that has experience trying to reach out to those communities and has a, a hold there. And has a tradition there, um, and is you know really working that out. It's also probably worth noting in this context that uh, the Black Panther Party, part of those breakfast programs we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, they organized them in a church uh, primarily that was sponsored by a Catholic priest, um, Monsignor Eugene Boyle, in California. Uh, so there is a real like material alliance between the church and the party as well. Like it's not like. Uh, Um, it's not as though Newton is just sort of thinking theoretically in abstraction about this. And of course there's, there are, there's a long, long history of black churches in particular having a a space in the political scene in the United States. But, uh, specifically the party itself is organized, uh, largely within a, uh, a Catholic church, um, at least in, in West California. So, uh, in the San Francisco Bay area. So that's, uh, maybe like an interesting side note anyway.
0: Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, the, um, the article starts off just kind of uh, describing the roles of institutions and how they work, and uh, that the Black Panther Party is an institution and churches are institutions, um, and that what is important is that, like, these institutions are somehow relevant to the communities that they are in, which seems like an obvious point, but um, it's kind of helpful to state it abstractly like that. So uh, Hugh Newton says that, like... Um, that's why that that's why churches um that's why churches uh, develop new programs so that they become like more relevant to the communities that they're in and people come to them. And like the party is the same way that it has to find ways to start programs that are relevant to the community um so that people will actually go and participate. I know this is like A really simple and obvious point about organizing but like unless you have something to offer a community i guess nobody really cares what you're doing like there's nothing transcendent (laughs) like transcendently good about the organization of church or party that like will just make people go in and of itself um churches i guess sometimes have that like uh the uh the like um metaphysics and guilt to motivate people to go even if it is really crappy but um you know i guess the way you attract new new folks to your your things is uh doing stuff that is interesting and important to them (laughs) it seems like an easy (laughs) point but like i don't know it's cool it's worth making
1: yeah i think so um it's also cool that they sort of view that as a way of being faithful to the communities that they serve is sort of not being alienated from their daily life uh that goes back a little bit to the stuff we were talking about with respect to cornell west uh in the monthly review where he was saying one thing leftists need to do is really overcome this allergy to religion because if you want to be with the people <laughs> you have to be willing to understand that the people actually have things that they like to do <laughs> and practices that they like to be part of and communities that they appreciate that don't necessarily have to be opposed to revolutionary praxis
0: yeah uh for sure i know that this is like a quote that we try out every single week i think uh but it, it all to, to me it always goes back to the the thing about fidel that you just can't let um you can't let religion just be a thing, uh, like a tool of the like the bourgeoisie to, yeah, uh, maintain oppression and control in society. So go to church and uh, <laughs> and show people what's up. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, yeah, uh, there's a, a quote from the article where he uh, <laughs> says just that. He says, uh, "So we go to church. We are involved in the church, and not in any hypocritical way. Religion, perhaps, is a thing that man needs at this time because scientists cannot answer all the questions." Uh, he kind of goes into this sort of like God of the Gaps thing, which is not very compelling to me, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, the the important thing isn't isn't sort of the theology, but the important thing is that like uh he uh and uh people in the Black Panther Party are like uh getting involved in good faith. It seems like you know they're he says not in any hypocritical way. They're they're going because like their community goes. Um, so that seems important. <laughs>
1: yeah well let's talk about that a little bit the maybe the theology behind this because it is very idiosyncratic and and i mean it's fine to say that it's a bit uh particular to the the party and, and uh to a materialist understanding of church um but one thing that's fascinating is he does go out of his way to say it's not hypocritical you know they're not going to church just to I guess, mobilize that community or cynically appropriate it toward revolutionary ends. They're trying to find a way to participate in their own kind of way. And what I think is so fascinating about that is the, the two sort of themes that keep popping up in this essay. One is... Uh, like you were saying it's a sort of god of the gaps thing right so scientists can't explain everything so in the meantime god fills that role so you go to church to kind of remind yourself that science isn't explaining every single thing in the universe and you know we're we're sort of free to marvel at the things that we don't know Mm -hmm. uh but the other thing that he he deals with which i find almost more fascinating is this kind of mystical undercurrent where yeah For him, the more we know, the more we'll be able to kind of become one. He used that kind of oneness language, one with the universe, or to commune with the universe in this important kind of way. And that's a theme that you can, I mean, you can trace that all the way back to pick your favorite (laughs) weird Christian mystic in the Christian tradition, uh, mm-hmm. this sense that you know knowledge kind of leads you on this ascent uh, up to the the heights of the divine or whatever, at which point the human and the divine become sort of indistinguishable. And I think that's what's so wild about this essay is with Newton, you get this materialist, materialist reading of church, but you also get the sincerely mystic vision of theology. And I, I think that's something that really kind of blew my mind a little bit.
0: Yeah, I agree that the mystical vision part is uh extremely cool. Um and to to see him like th- that the idea is acting in good faith and not being like an entryist or something <clears throat> is uh is worth noting. There's a a part a little bit later uh in the essay that's uh interesting as well, uh where he goes on to say uh I think it was rather arrogant of my party to criticize the community uh for trying to discover answers to spiritual questions. Um so, like, there's, like, this interesting sort of corrective where he has to step back and think, like, well, um, maybe, like, the, the way we were uh, positioning ourselves to the church was not so great. Um, but then he goes on to say something I do actually really appreciate. Um, the only thing we will criticize in the future is when the church does not act upon the evils that cause man to get on his knees and humble himself in awe at the large force which he can, cannot control. But as uh, man becomes stronger and stronger and his understanding greater and greater, he will have a closer walk with thee note the song says walk not crawl uh so it's like um the the sort of position that uh huey p newton puts the black panther party in relationship to the church is this like one where they're not going to try to answer the spiritual questions in people's lives and like they're not going to try to critique religion on that point um but what that what they will do is critique sort of the material reality that the church has to interact with and um that is good. (laughs) That's why, that's why leftists should go to church, not to (laughs) criticize religion and like make fun of people for believing in God or whatever, but to like point out the contradictions uh, in the things we say and the, you know, what that actually means in practice.
1: Yeah. We've talked about that also in the past on the show, that one thing that leftists can really contribute to Christian communities is exactly that, that, consciousness that is sort of born out of those struggles and participating in party movements and other leftist movements that, you know, work really hard at trying to get to know what material pressure points are at work in a community, and that Christians sometimes, in their own way, uh, intuit uh, vaguely or, you know, maybe want to intuit, but kind of don't really know how, or they're wrapped up in a certain kind of language that, that prohibits them even from coming to a final final conclusion about those kinds of issues um, like about why poverty happens or about why some people are homeless. Uh, leftists can really help, I think, Christian communities sort of um, authentically embody those hopes to help the poor, or to help the homeless, or to help, you know, whatever marginalized community they're in, they're interested in. And there's something kind of neat about that, too, that Newton uh, Newton really suggests that it doesn't have to be that these communities even have to merge in the exact same kind of way or whatever. Um, they just need to find a way to relate on their own terms. And for the, for the party, the black Panther party, that means calling out the church when it's taking these reactionary stands, which I mean, any, I feel like any authentic Christian should be sort of grateful for, you know, being able to have that kind of voice. That's able to kind of, uh, catch you when you can't really see outside your own Christian vocabulary or, uh, patterns of thinking or whatever.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so good. I'm glad we could reemphasize that whole, that whole point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, please go to church and tell us how wrong we are about so many things <laughs> uh that's i think right. that's a, the, the best idea that's my missionary <laughs> plea to leftists like okay i know theology is weird and uh maybe you you have a trouble trouble with the metaphysics and fine great uh i think i have trouble with those things too but you just come to church and tell us how wrong we are about uh <laughs> the things we're doing oh my god someone please somebody's
1: gotta Someone has to come to
0: church and tell us how bad this is. (laughs) Um, Well, on that point, uh, there is some more like illuminating stuff in here about the way that uh, he sees the Black Panther Party as an institution and the church as an institution. Um, So uh, he tells like a little a little narrative uh, about uh, his childhood. Uh, His father was a minister and that he spent 15 years in church. Uh, So he has, I think, a lot of this. I mean, I think that Christianity is sort of just like a, a thing that's in his brain because of his childhood, which I can relate to. Um, <laughs> I'm sure his church is different than mine, though. Uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> different, different Christianities, I would imagine. Um, anyways, uh, there's this part where he kind of goes on to say, though, that he uh, OK, he says, um, As man develops and understands more, he will approach God and finally reach heaven and merge with the universe. Again, there's like that sort of like mystic quality in the rhetoric he uses and the sort of theology that's there. Um, And then he says, I've never heard one preacher say that there is a need for the church in heaven. The church would negate itself Um, as a man approaches his development and becomes larger and larger. The church therefore becomes smaller and smaller because it's no longer uh, is not needed any longer. Then if we had ministers who uh, would deal with the social realities that cause misery so that we can change them, man will become larger and larger. At that time, the God within uh, the God within will come out and we can merge with him. Then we will be one with the universe. So uh, there's some really wild stuff going on there, too, about sort of like the purpose of institutions is to um, carry out sort of a goal and then to negate itself. Uh, right. that's a pretty fun idea. I don't really know. That's such a hard thing to think about in terms of the church. Cause like eschatology, uh, for Christians is like such a large and long scope thing. But like, f- I don't think there's anything wrong with what he's saying in, in the sense that like the church would negate itself sort of eschatologically. There's a, there'll have to be a time when like the church's goal is over and done because like mission complete end of the world kind of stuff happens or whatever. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but like in a in a more practical way, um, the church has like really material goals, and uh, it can complete those goals and negate itself in some interesting ways.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the song that we end on every single episode every week, right? From the illogical spoon. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Uh, and uh, heaven come to Earth, and there won't be no church. We'll meet down at the riverside, right? That's kind of the whole idea, um, is that there's this es- eschatological vision where you don't actually have to get up too early and like drag yourself out of bed to go to church, because um, uh, you'll be living in the future that you're sort of modeling um, on Sunday mornings. Hopefully,
0: yeah, that's neat. <laughs> that's why I picked that song so many so so many episodes ago. <laughs>
1: Just uh, all anticipating this this moment we could artic- articulate it. Yeah, that's um, right. So let's talk a little bit, Matt, about uh, the way that this exploration of church, however you want to look at it, uh, relates to the exploration of church in other communities that we've looked at on past episodes. Specifically, I've been thinking a little bit about the Gospel in Salantaname and kind of how they were reading biblical stories and and narratives and thinking about their own organization of, of church. Uh, was there anything in this essay that kind of stuck out to you that maybe has some, some echoes there or anything like that?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, well, uh, I'll get the easy one out of the way really quick. Uh, the way that like Fidel talked about religion in the Fidel and religion book, uh, with Frey is like really similar to the way that Hugh P. Newton talks about religion as well. Um, so there's like tons of, tons of really obvious similarities there. And I think even more that we're going to find in the, next part about jesus uh, mm. but there's a, a really interesting sort of like ethical call and evaluation uh in this bit about church um from uh from newton uh okay so it's actually not about church uh as such but it's more about one of the projects of the black panther party and um but but there's a, a really similar way that um they understand the world ethically and in terms of justice that i think is um Similar in terms of the gospel in Sontaname. Uh Okay, so uh, uh, he tells this really interesting story. Um, I guess long story short, uh, one of the things that the Black Panther Party was doing at this point was trying to like make like a, a factory that would make clothes for people and just kind of hand them out. Um, and specifically shoes. Shoes was like a big thing that they were worried about. Um, so he kind of tells a story about why shoes are important to the black Panther party. Um, so he says that, um, uh, we'll point out that everyone in the society should have shoes and we should not have a situation like the one in Beaufort County, South Carolina, where 70% of the children suffer brain damage because of malnutrition. They have malnutrition because of the combination of not enough food and parasites in the stomach. The words eat up, the worms eat up half the food in that the child, uh, take in. Why? Because the ground is infested with eggs. Uh, the eggs of the worms, and the children don't have shoes to wear. So as soon as we send a doctor there to cure the illness, they get the parasites again. We think that the shoe program is a very relevant thing: first to help them stay alive, then to create conditions in which they can grow up and work out a plan to change things. If they have brain damage, they will never be revolutionists because they uh, will already have been killed. That is genocide itself. Um, so in that in that story, in, in like that uh, evaluation of a situation, um, like first of all, like. Um, how brilliant is it just like, oh, well, we'll just make shoes for people. That's like a pretty, <laughs> a pretty cool, yeah. cool thing to do. Uh, but anyways, in that ethical judgment of the situation, we see something really similar in the gospel and soul and Taname and um, the way they think about um, the like genocide and like the in, in, infanticide and sort of the connections that has with the uh, nativity story and Herod. Um, it's uh, again like that, that focus on, on children and the understanding of like the sort of the revolutionary nature of children and like sort of like the the potentiality bound up in their lives and like what they could become and like the ways that they'll interact with the world that um you can help them see, uh so all of that's kind of there in that story and it's such a an easy connection. I mean it's the exact same thing that um I don't remember what the person's name was in Solentiname. Uh shoot, yeah, well I should have looked it up. But anyways, <laughs> one of those one of those folks uh. In, in that I mean they made the the exact same point that like when children starve like they will ne- like you know that's um that is uh, infanticide that's that could be genocide that's like uh you're neglecting uh, a class of people who are who will be disproportionately affected by poverty and um that moral judgment of calling it genocide is uh worthwhile and something that I think has some religious uh connotations to it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And of course, that's uh, that situation has not gone away, not just the, the shoe problem. But, I mean, um, Matt and I have done some research on Flint, Michigan, and the uh, water crisis there. And it's the same kind of thing, right? Like, so many children were exposed to lead poisoning. And even if they do end up solving the problem uh, in the near future, which they still haven't, I mean, it's been a few years now, uh, cra- crazily, since the crisis has been brought to public attention, Um, even if they do solve that problem, there are children there who they've already been affected by lead poisoning such that, I mean, they like the damage is not reversible. Uh, That community will be affected forever. Uh, And I mean, lead poisoning is already sort of linked to uh, difficulty in learning and uh, greater incarceration rates. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the same exact pattern kind of replaying itself in a, in a horrifying kind of way. So Uh, The kind of thing that the peasants in Salentaname identified as Christians, you know, that um, the destruction of children is a sort of repetition of the destruction of all the children by Herod. uh, And also the uh, observation from Newton here that the destruction of children is a a genocidal act um, that's still going on right now in a place like Michigan. So uh, and and all over the United States and other parts of the world, right? First Nations communities and elsewhere. So. Yeah, I don't know. It it seems like these kinds of themes are just more and more relevant for Christians and and leftists alike in a way that should be kind of a natural affinity.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that just I I know that the the term genocide is strong language to use about those situations. But um, even though that is strong language and like strong rhetoric, I think it's it's worth it. Um, It's so hard to elicit an actual reaction from Christians on these issues of like justice, especially like when it comes to the ways that poverty are wrapped up in them um, and race are wrapped up in them in in the case of Flint, like, I don't know if, if evangelicals are so absolutely, you know, um, staunch about their, their views about like being pro-life or whatever, then like step up. Like this is one of those times when they should actually care. Um,
1: yeah. And it drives home that materialist critique of theology, right? Because evangelicals yeah. don't care in a, in a material way.
0: That's right. So come to our churches and tell us to care.
1: <laughs> exactly for make, real us, though.
0: make us do it oh my god uh, someone will have to make us because uh apparently uh so many christians are incapable of thinking through that in a really uh critical way
1: yeah well uh that's a good <laughs> good transition to jesus the one who's supposed to make us do a lot of things <laughs> um yeah So Huey P. Newton had a lot of thoughts about Jesus, uh, as Vincent talked about a long time ago, there's actually a lot of really interesting Christological resonances between Huey P. Newton's position in the, in the Panthers, uh, and also just, you know, whatever Jesus is meeting to, to Christian communities. Uh, and it's cool that Newton kind of took the time to really think through what Jesus ministry was like. And in this piece that we were looking at, uh, he employs a very interesting materialist understanding of Jesus and the Gospels in general, and uh there's so much to say about it, we will say a bunch of things about it, I guess. That's what this podcast is for. But one thing that I think is cool to note up front is that uh I, w- I was genuinely surprised by how conversant Newton was with certain themes in biblical studies and theology, uh specifically German Protestant theology. I don't know what that connection is or why he was aware of them. But uh, I mean, he's name dropping people like Schweitzer and, and Bard and others. And uh, there's something kind of very fascinating about that. I mean, he's an academic, so that part's not surprising. Like, I'm not surprised that he reads books, but <laughs> I guess uh, it's surprising to me that the leader, one, one of the leaders of a revolutionary party would take the time to get to know that literature as well as he apparently did. Uh, so let's dive into a little bit. Uh, Matt, was there anything that jumped out to you in this, uh, this article in particular, About how Huey P. Newton sort of looked at Jesus and his ministry.
0: Yes, all of it jumped out. It was all jumping out (laughs) the page at me and screaming, Oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, Yeah, it's all extremely cool. Um, This is a reading of Jesus uh, as the, like, sort of like a a figurehead of a popular movement. Um, And, like, to think of Jesus as a figurehead of a popular movement. Like, shouldn't be surprising. I mean, like, he had disciples and, like, there are people following him around. Like, of course, that's what he was. But we think of him always in terms of, like, uh, I guess religious movements. But in the way that uh, Newton talks about him here, he's sort of, like, the figure of a political movement, um, which I know, like, all of my New Testament scholar friends probably have a lot to say about. And I don't know. Um, I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting way to think about him. Um, the other thing I really do like about this piece so much is uh not only is jesus characterized as a figure of a popular movement but so is barabbas you know the um
1: yeah that's right
0: the sort of like uh i mean he only comes out up one time in the gospels and it's like he gets let out of jail because the people want barabbas free so there's like some interesting dynamics going on here between jesus and barabbas as being figures that are um more similar than they are different i think um there's definitely like some some interesting things to talk about with regards to that i don't know what was interesting to you dean we can come back yeah, to the problems no. thing later.
1: <laughs> uh, the same things kind of came up for me. Um, a couple of themes to note off the front, I guess. Uh, one is that he he opens this excerpted text at least, kind of talking about how uh, religion and politics are sort of uh, importantly related. Um, so he doesn't see them as being, you know, extremely separate. Uh, in fact, he says, underneath the seemingly conflicting vocabularies of sacred and secular movements is a unity or unities of tradition and prediction. Uh, the dialectic of myth and politics, in fact, is history. And I think that's a really kind of interesting way to get into these kinds of conversations, that uh, you would see the histories of religion and, and politics as intertwined and not uh, separate. I mean, maybe that comes from Newton having a, <laughs> a dad who was also a pastor or something, and then him, himself being a, a politician uh, but there's something kind of cool about that. Um, and I think that really feeds into his vision of Jesus, not just as a person thinking politically about Christ, but someone who thinks that these things are, are naturally together. I mean, just like Ernesto Cardinal and the Gospel Insolentoname folks, uh, he sees Jesus as a figure from an oppressed place, right? And And mm-hmm. the most oppressed of oppressed places. Uh, so he, just like those peasants in uh, Solentoname, they, they all sort of pick up on the fact that Jesus is from Nazareth, you know, this um, extremely poor and, and boring part <laughs> of, of uh, an oppressed part of, of Rome. Uh, I love this part where he says, Jesus' accent, clothes, manners must have been substandard in every way when measured against the cosmopolitan capital of Jerusalem despite his obvious genius for communication with both the castes of Sadducees and Pharisees. Mm. Uh, I just love that attention to kind of imagining what it would be like to be someone like Jesus from this rural, provincial town, uh, mixing it up with all these religious authorities from, you know, these city centers. It's it's just interesting to kind of have that that perspective going into it, that these religious and political kind of features are, are supposed to go together.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, nothing good comes from Nazareth kind of idea, where... Um... right jesus yeah jesus is poor substandard uh that's an interesting way of thinking about it but still he he does the things he does
1: yeah uh i also like that he tries to mine jesus's ministries for political strategies that's probably the most interesting thing about it to me uh because it's one thing to look at the fact that there are political things happening in the gospels but it's a whole nother thing to look at jesus as a uh uh, a political figure who's making political decisions. I mean, that's the kind of thing that even people like John Howard Yoder are trying to do, right? The politics of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, but Newton's politics of Jesus are <laughs> very different from Yoder's. Uh, I don't know. Was there anything about that that sort of jumped out at you, Matt?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, he makes um, he makes some claims uh, that are kind of reminiscent of like Her- Herbert McCabe when we read that thing about class war a while back. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, there's a bit where he's he's talking about the Beatitudes uh, specifically uh, here. It's uh, Newton says uh, now it seems quite clear that the injunction of love is meant to be binding within the caste of the poor, but not as between poor and rich, since Jesus himself both here and later turns the full venom of his famous tongue on the ruling caste. By calling for unity against the oppressors, he is speaking as a, uh, as man, for man, to man, and one could not be mystified by the deistic vocabulary of a culture that was, after all, a colonized theocracy. But the benedictions and the curses must be seen as good news brought to the miserable masses of the uh, Middle East. So... Uh, there's a a really cool uh I mean class reading of Jesus here that is um I think not unfamiliar to us on this podcast. Um like Herbert McCabe did that kind of thing that the and and we see it happening in uh the gospel of Sultaname and with Fidel and other folks too that um the good news is a um a good news for the poor um and the uh the rich well there's something something else some other type of good news they need to hear. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, um, it's binding within the cast of the poor, but not as between the poor and the rich being a, uh, I think a, a pretty instructive way of the way that, I mean, he, Newton thinks about Jesus, but also the way that I, we continually think about Jesus on this podcast, that like, there's something, there's something there that like, there's some type of, um, commitment that, uh, we find in Jesus over and over again to the poor and, uh, a challenge always brought against the rich. So, uh, That was cool to read um, and I think really inspiring and good and uh, reinforcing probably all of those uh, good leftist readings I uh, have done so far. I don't know. What do you think about that part, Dean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I picked up some similar vibes and also I thought it was just interesting how this rubs so hard against the liberal idea of Jesus as this ultimate unifier where all differences are eclipsed and... The goal of, I guess, loving your enemies is to forget that they're your enemies, (laughs) in a way. Um, And what is interesting about both McCabe and Newton here is that what Jesus is trying to do is provide tools by which people who are being oppressed can have solidarity with one another. Mm -hmm. And that in no way um, is meant to occlude the real differences between their situation and the situation of their, their oppressors. Uh, one one wild thing that Newton says, pushing that a little bit further, is uh, that only the poor can actually understand Jesus's miracles. Um, mm-hmm. This is a pretty materialistic reading. I mean, he doesn't come exactly right out and say and say this, but I think it's not it's not pushing it too far to think this is kind of what he has in mind. But it seems like he's sort of suggesting, you know, the miracle is that Jesus would ever have united uh, the the poor in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly why the Sadducees and Pharisees, for Newton, can't understand Jesus, or why they're constantly misunderstanding his parables, constantly um, not getting the same kind of word from Jesus. There's a part where he quotes that part where uh, part in the Gospels where Jesus says, a sign will be given to this generation. And, of course, uh, lots of signs are given to uh, poor people, in particular, in the Gospels. And Newton is, is playing that uh that line by saying well if you're in the the oppressed class all these things are miraculous the people are coming together and you know sharing their food and uh distributing you know wealth among themselves but to the ruling caste uh those things are not miraculous in fact they're they're the worst possible thing that could be happening um so in that sense i think it's just it's really interesting to kind of see how This vision of Jesus as a, not as a divider necessarily, but as someone who recognizes the divisions that are already set within society and is trying to actually contribute to (laughs) one side over and against the other. Um, That's a a vision of Jesus that I think a lot of Christians, especially in first world contexts, have a hard time exploring.
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, I know that we've talked about this before, but um, why not talk about it again? Um, (laughs) I mean, something that you said sort of at the top of, the last comment you just made was that uh loving your enemies doesn't mean forgetting that they're your enemies. Um and that's a really I think important lesson for Christians to learn um when it comes to uh class divisions in the sense that like uh what it means uh to to love to love the rich might mean to tell them to like, you know, unburden themselves. Um because that's like you know that's a division that's a dividing line that they've put up that they are like actively keeping keeping some people um, in a different economic status and that is not great. So uh, to to love your enemies might mean to like tell them tell them to stop being your enemy. I guess like it's <laughs> it seems like kind of simple, yeah. but um, something that a rich person would never hear. Like they wouldn't understand that at all. Um, you know they get weighed down with the sort of utilitarian idea that like, well, they could do so much good with their money and stuff like that. But, um, really the best thing they could do is, uh, distribute it to other people.
1: Right. No, (laughs) Uh, totally.
0: Stop expropriating labor from other folks or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. I I mean, there's nothing that really says love more than trying to correct someone's like bad behavior. Um, Maybe that's like the parent in me speaking, but like you know if you if you like really love someone you want them to like stop messing up and stop like being being like bad <laughs> in some way, so like yeah. you have to tell them to stop uh, telling telling the rich to unburn themselves of their wealth is like a uh, is a thing that you say because you care about them
1: right, and uh that's sort of the weird thing about um the class consciousness of rich folks in general is that they don't recognize the poor as their enemies and they can't love them as their enemies in that way uh which is not a good situation right because um when they are confronted with that correction they don't view it as a kind of loving correction from an enemy they view it as a um i don't know i don't know what they view it as like re- not, resentment not that. right like yeah like exactly exactly the
0: the it's if, if a, a rich person were to hear this conversation we're having right now, um, listen, if you're rich and you're hearing this conversation right now, please, <laughs> please <laughs> donate to our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Consider something different. Yeah, that's right, though. They would just hear they would hear, though, like um, someone who wishes they were rich and who's jealous or whatever.
1: Yeah, Right. Uh, and it's weird that rich folks sort of get off the hook, too, on those calls to love your enemy. Um, like, poor people have to love their enemy by, I guess, being nice to them and not not ever getting out of their place or getting out of line. Whereas rich folks have to love their enemies by giving philanthropically, like giving back the very thing that they already expropriated from them. Yeah, um, and that's right. It's, I mean, capitalism just totally messes up, I think, our Christian ethical consciousness such as it is, um, which is a pretty... I don't know. That's something that I feel like Christians should genuinely be upset about. Um, you know, like, it it's hard to understand what Jesus is asking you to do in a capitalist society because capitalism bre- breaks your brain. Like, it makes you think certain things that are in conflict with other ways that you're trying to get formed, and that's not, not what you want.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. The the thing about, like, about the wealthy and sort of, like, their, the way they see their ethical commitment to other folks is like yeah philanthropy but like it is confused because it's like well you got that wealth by you know some less than honest means most likely um unless i don't know i i can't think of a way that you'd make a ton of money uh sort of like cleanly <laughs> but um but yeah i mean like you know they they um i i guess what bugs me about it is that philanthropy is always such a utilitarian thing where it's like well i i'm like a i'm a rich person i have like a lot of money and uh, I know that like um, the the division, like the sort of inequality, the economic inequality in society is bad. But I know that I can do like a lot of really good things with this money and like only I know how to do it. Right. And instead of like mm. stopping the cycle of exploitation, um, they don't. They just try to sort of figure out the places they can give the most amount of money to do the most amount of good. And not saying that like philanthropy is bad or something because like lots of good things come from it. But it's still like within the cycle um, of exploitation of labor and other sorts of forms of oppression.
1: Yeah, I mean, philanthropy is bad insofar as it makes rich people feel good about themselves and justify their exploitation, and it makes poor folks view rich people as their saviors when in fact they're they're exploiters. I mean, uh, you know, whatever. It's not bad that poor people sometimes get more. <laughs> more stuff than they would have had otherwise like that's good i guess but, that's what i meant um, sorry yeah that's what i yeah, mean yeah. like <laughs> but but
0: yeah it does, it does sort of obfuscate the root of the problem and that yeah is, yeah it, that's silly and self-defeating and also um a mechanism for uh maintaining a status quo
1: right um. Well, speaking of all that, uh, let's just do a a real, a real hard hard left to Barabbas here. Um, no, I mean talking about the, somebody so, who also no, doesn't no, like wait. the status quo.
0: But like speaking of uh, speaking of either the rich or another option, Barabbas, <laughs> he's the lesser of two evils in this sense. Uh, no, that wasn't a good one. Well done. Yeah, I don't you did know. It. Uh, so, uh, a minute ago I was talking about Brabus, uh, and sort of the role that he plays in this, uh, essay about Jesus and, uh, Newton mentions him a few times. Um, but, uh, he mentions him like as, uh, I mean, not of maybe the same, same movement of which Jesus is a part, but, uh, but more like Jesus than Rome is like Jesus, I I guess um yeah he's a a revolutionary figure there's one point where he um talks about Barabbas as sort of a gorilla which is uh interesting way of thinking um thinking of uh Barabbas's character someone that we, we don't really hear about very much in the New Testament he's just like you know freed from prison and uh I don't know uh New Testament scholars kind of uh frame him as like a zealot someone who's going to be like an insurrectionist um but uh Barabbas is framed in the Newton essay as being the lesser of two evils. Like, if the choice is between Rome or insurrection, Barabbas is uh, the lesser of those two evils. That's pretty wild.
1: Yeah, uh, even more than that. um, So he does seem as the lesser of two evils between, I guess, you know, Rome and Barabbas. Barabbas is clearly the superior uh, figure. But even more than that, Newton says... So he's criticizing... um, what he calls 20th century understandings uh, of the Gospels. He says they, they no longer permit the enlightened view of Jesus as simply a self-conscious lever to move God and humankind into a new relationship of grace. He says missing from these studies of the Gospels is the stench and conspiracy, the insurrectionary yeast of occupied Judea, where, uh, where Jesus and Barabbas are but the hammer and anvil of popular rebellion. Uh, I think that is so crazy to kind of see them as similar figures or somehow working towards similar ends. I mean, it's, it's hard not to read this as a kind of uh, Malcolm and Martin <laughs> situation, hmm. which is what the Panthers are in in some ways inheriting, right? The uh, the sort of legacies of both of those figures. Um, and uh, there's something that you can kind of see that here, uh, that Barabbas is, is played off not as the... Uh, the bad guy who gets to go free which is I guess how I heard it in catechism when I was a kid Mm -hmm. Um, but rather he's a a real force of of popular revolution which is why the people would demand him to go free like they don't demand him just because they hate Jesus so much or something which is maybe like a weird latent anti-semitism that I inherited or something in in my Catholic formation Uh, but rather they demand Barabbas to go free because like he he actually kind of means something to the people in a way.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's just such like a, a character that gets pushed to the side in the, um I don't know, the ways that we engage with the gospel in church. Like, I don't know, the only time you, you never really hear about Barabbas is like towards Easter or something, right? When like you're kind of going through the passion and uh, Barabbas goes free and like, that's it. And you never really think about what he means, but um he's like a, a popular figure, right? Like he's, he's on the side of those people. So it makes yeah. some sense in that context.
1: That's right. So it's interesting, maybe we could kind of move to the conclusion of this bit where uh, Newton is reflecting on Jesus in the end. So like I said earlier, this piece comes out of a book that he wrote called Revolutionary Suicide, which is a pretty wild book. I mean, it is very intense and very, I mean, the title is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like, if you're a revolutionary, you have to commit your life to that revolution, and a lot of the Panthers obviously did. I mean, they paid with their lives, both uh, in some cases by uh, losing it, um, but also in in other cases by being incarcerated. You know, there are Panthers who are still incarcerated, and uh, it's interesting to see Newton reflecting on Jesus, who also gave his life for a certain revolutionary cause, as Newton reads it. Um, He closes this piece by quoting Albert Schweitzer, who was a famous uh, German uh, Protestant biblical commentator who uh, went on to do a ton of really intense work with the poor. Um, He says, Albert Schweitzer summed up Jesus's historic uh, dilemma by saying that when Jesus put his shoulder to the wheel of history, it it did not move. Then, said Schweitzer, he threw himself upon it and the wheel turned. Uh, This act of downgoing, in the Nietzschean sense, is the birth of the Superman, or say simply man, and the consciousness of the masses as history. The wheel turned, myth became history, and for a moment, God became man. So you can see this real real vision of Jesus as a, uh, I I don't know if you want to say the crucifixion is a revolutionary suicide, but uh, it's not too far off the mark to see that in a way. Um, and maybe it's a, kind of an interesting line of thought that especially leftist Christians might consider as sort of viewing Jesus's moment as, as exactly that, right. Trying to really force, um, history to move in a certain direction.
0: Yeah. Um, I think, uh, we could say a few things about that. Um, so I know like one thing that people on Twitter hate us for um, (laughs) is for like, uh, reading Jesus entirely too materially. Like that's a thing, a critique people give us, uh, from time to time. And, uh, yeah, like that's probably true every now and again. Um, but even if, even if we don't, I mean, I think that, uh, thinking of Jesus as sort of a revolutionary in some sense, completely makes sense. Even if you want to think of it, think about it in terms of, um, the more like, uh, like salvific narratives um in terms of like metaphysics and sin and stuff there's a, a it's a revolutionary act where like uh where we have to like recognize that jesus like goes to hell gets gets the keys and opens the gates like that's a like a movement of liberation even if you don't mm-hmm. want to uh kind of deal with the material end of the spectrum like fine um so i don't know it doesn't seem all that uh hard to believe to me (laughs) or like you know it's not that (laughs) controversial to me but like that's the criticism that people give us sometimes and i think that even if you uh find the the like more materialist reading readings of uh jesus and the gospels too hard to deal with or like you know not interesting to you or whatever uh i think reading them um along more orthodox lines still makes sense in this way
1: yeah and it's it's also like sure whatever jesus died for your sins however you work that out that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of ways Christians have worked that out <laughs> over the histories, but Jesus also lived like a real-life human life, and that's also an extremely Orthodox Christian opinion. Yes. And if you if you think that that's true, then you have to view Jesus as bumping up with other human beings and having relationships with them and doing things with them and to them and receiving things from them and... <laughs> Uh, humans are political creatures. It's just a, a fact of of human life. So, um, I mean, there's always going to be that material dimension of of Jesus. And I guess just like how we were saying earlier, the the uh, the Panther Party is useful in church when it tells the church where it's going wrong. Um, materialists are useful reading jesus by telling us where jesus is materially relevant and Mm -hmm. that's a thing that i think a lot of christians have a hard time seeing and a thing that people like newton can kind of help us get back on track with yeah i think so that's cool For listening to the Magnificast uh this has been a good time uh Matt and I have both been traveling a bunch so we we decided to take a break from getting some guests for a while hopefully it was a good conversation um we had a good time talking about Huey P. Newton we mentioned that we talked to Vincent Lloyd in episode six so if you forgot the couple times we mentioned it I guess now now you know now you can go listen to it right now after Yo, this one.
0: yeah also um we mentioned an episode of Revolutionary Left Radio um the episode i don't know what number it is but the episode just titled the black panther party so go back and check yeah, that yeah. out too it's uh it's definitely worth your time
1: it really is uh, and fills out i think a lot more than what we can hear in this episode especially um that would that would be really useful uh yeah you can also find more of us uh this podcast uh, all over the internet in a variety of places uh you can find us on twitter at the magnificast you can find us on facebook at the magnificast you can find our discussion group the magnificast basement and you can tell us all your funny stories about reading reading the black panthers uh in in public um around people who just know about movies uh, you can find us on uh, Patreon slash The TheMagnificast where you can slip us a, a couple bucks and uh, contribute to this, this revolutionary activity if you if you want. Um, yeah, th- those are all the things you can do. You can email us, too. Also, I guess. Uh, we do have an email. TheMagnificast at gmail.com. Easy enough. Um, and the last two things, we are on two podcast networks which are worth mentioning. One is Theology Corner, and that's full of all kinds of interesting authors, friends of ours, uh, other podcasts, uh, people you can hang out with. A lot of people there have really a ton of affinities with what we're doing here and are expanding that in their own ways and, and doing their own thing and talking about Christianity and the left in really, really cool ways. So I would encourage you to check that out. And the other is a platform called Critical Media and revolutionary left is on there uh friendly anarchism who we've talked to in the past is on there uh lots of, of really good folks so we've got our our feet in both both camps the the left camp and and the christian camp of i guess growing media empires so there you go there you have it we're doing it really doing it 2018 uh cool well that's it we're gonna let the theological spoon play us out you can learn all about uh, not getting up for church in the morning